Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this. It is Pilot's Episodes, the even less frequent flying podcast than ever before. I am I am JB and I am joined, as always, by our three pilots. I'll nip her on the room now. So, Goddard, how are you? I'm all right, mate. Happy to be back in Blighty. Yeah, are you allowed to say where you've been on, or anything? Kept it on the down low, but I've been away for the last six months. Hence you... the uh, the slightly infrequent pods. Yeah, so are you allowed to say where you've been? Yeah, yeah. So Seychelles. Defending the Seychelles is a particularly tricky beach, but uh, <laughs> but some air commodore has to do it, don't they? I there know. was a drinks reception in, in Antigua. You had to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was an opening of a building. All sorts of things going on, all connected with carriers. No, I was the, uh, I was in the um, combined air operations centre in Al Udeid in Qatar as wow. the social uh, representative. The social <laughs> slash um, uh, government openings rep in there um as the director so i was directing wow. all of the air power across the uh, the middle east that's incredible i mean i don't know how much i can ask ask you about that so i probably won't ask you anything so uh, you don't have to explain it in fact if you want to pipe up with some information later on do so on your own uh, you know in your own time so uh, we don't uh, we don't trip you up there no, I, I I tell you what, it was an absolutely brilliant job. It, it, it's really good to be home because, uh, you know, it, although I left in lockdown, I was pretty much locked down out there and I've arrived back into lockdown again. So uh, I am desperate to go and see a pub at some point in the near future. But um, it, we're no, all desperate job. to go and see a pub. <laughs> yeah, brilliant job, brilliant people. Not something I've done before working a um a uh, command air operations center and so to see the command and control on that side of it from the inside especially during a uh, you know pretty exciting time with uh, uh, the election u.s election because it's a it was an embed job with the uh, united states air force um and uh so working with all those guys my deputy was an f-22 guy who was utterly brilliant some awesome stories about f-22 i love that airplane even more but yeah well uh, i'm sure we'll get into it in, uh, in various parts yeah. You know, given that just before we came on air, you said I cannot talk anything about it. I I think that's what that's an epic fail. <laughs> you, you you do know that we're we're now recording. You've just said everything that you went and did. I haven't said I haven't said anything that I, I went said. Did. Nothing. <laughs> Innocent. I said nothing. I've, direct, I've I directed a bit of air power. Yeah. <laughs> um, a little bit. Just power. like a, a grand air traffic controller. Just on, um, um, I, I never actually got on the radio. If I'd have got on the radio, things had been very, very serious. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had people for that. 
a man. Just on, um, <laughs> just on, on, on lockdown and all of that nonsense. Uh, we're obviously locked down over here. When you go over to a job like the one that you've just come back from, God, is what exactly the working hours like? Because I don't imagine lockdown would have made a shred of difference to you anyway. No, the the lockdown was just uh, you know because it's a, there's a massive base over there, um, and the lockdown aspect was purely to be able to work through COVID. Um, so the same sort of restrictions we've got over here of how many people you can have meeting rooms, wearing a mask, you know, those sorts of things. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's a 24 seven, um, operation clearly with, uh, and has been for a long time out there in the middle East. And so I was on call 24 seven. So set of phones in my room and, um, was always tied to a phone at some point. Um, but, uh, you know, it was reasonably long days sometimes and sometimes seven days a week, you know, depending on what was going on. But, um, you know, you worked through it and, uh, uh, it, it was fine. It was good. Excellent. Uh, and the guy who just can't contain himself, he's very, very excited. Uh, it's Dunk. How, how are you? I'm always excited. Always excited. Uh, I'm all right, apart from uh, the snow's grounded us today, which is a little bit of a a bit of a bummer. No, no flying today. Oh, I not? think you got freezing fog tomorrow as well, Dunk. So you. Could, I know uh, it's not looking good, is it? It's like yes, it's a very long secretly weekend. go on the lash, and you'll be absolutely fine. Okay. Uh, I'm, <laughs> we, ne- we never did that. Never happened. Right we never say nothing. Uh, what drinking on the weather? <laughs> never. Uh, at what? It is the only way for freezing fog to clear. It is. Get yes. Ming Mong <laughs> and it will be gin as tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, just out of interest, when do you start teaching pilots to fly in freezing fog? Because I imagine at some point you're going to need to do it. Well, <clears throat> that is a good question. And um, generally, it's a little Don't bit... Don't ask uh, tricky questions, JB. It's a bit, a bit a further down the line. And the reason is the aeroplane, because we're at the elementary stage, our aeroplanes actually um, are not allowed to fly in icing conditions. So um, if there's a chance of icing, then we don't go into it, Um, Mm -hmm. which is a great shame. But there you are. It means that when the freezing fog hits, we, uh, well, if we could go to the pub, we'd go to the pub. But we can't, so we just go home. Uh, but most most jets dunk if it is visibility zippo then you know you we haven't got the sort of systems or most fast jets haven't got the, the systems that you know the auto lands that the airliners have that, that come down and you know do a we need we need a civvy airline pilot on but we're going to do a, a cat three ils she hands off and the aircraft will land itself so there is uh you know freezing fog can uh, stop play for all of us Really? Yeah. What, the, even for you guys in in, uh, in Typhoon or F3? Well, you, you can take off in it. As long as you can see enough visual references to get airborne, you can get air, airborne. The trouble is that for the majority of systems that we have, and the ra- we, we work to a, um, an instrument rating system such that you, you kind of start and you, you might be allowed down to 500 feet. So if there's a cloud base of 500 feet, you can come in. Then as you get a bit more hours and experience, it goes to 400 feet. But the lowest that we can go is 200-foot cloud base. And that's not very high, to be honest. That's no. a pretty low cloud base. Um, but as soon as it gets below that and the visibility gets down to sort of um, mist and fog sort of visibility that you would, uh, you would know, then it's quite difficult to land as you can't see the runway. So um, you can take off. 
as long as you're going somewhere else. Ah, I see. So you, I, you can fly in it. You yeah. just you can't land back. I, I'm not. Yeah, so I, I was just going to say on QRAJB, you can take off, and you know, it could be tasked to take off at any single point. If uh, if you haven't got any diversions, then clearly that's a big call to make us take off. But they will do because you can launch tankers that um, you know can refuel you or drag you to different bases. You know, you, we could have a diversion over in Norway, up in Iceland, um, somewhere else in the country ah. where you could always go and land because you you will never have freezing fog over the entirety of the uh, of the country, um, and so you can always refuel your way out of it. Oh, I see. And, and the, the, the worst place for that would be the Falklands. You know, that you, it, fog rolls in there and, you know, tankers have launched and refueled the boys or they've had to go elsewhere. You know, it's uh, because there's not many diversions down that neck of the woods. So, uh, you know, if fog suddenly does roll in, it's one of those horrendous weather. Where would get pretty, pretty tense. Where would you divert to? Like, is there another airstrip on a different island, or is it over to Chile? No, but yeah, different country. Boys have gone around exactly Chile, gone up to Uruguay. You know, but you're talking a long, long flying time. So you you would need the tanker, which you would then scramble. Oh my word! And yeah. Uh, now yeah. the tanker can land, can't it? Because apparently, uh, quite well, effectively, it's just a passenger aircraft with a fuel in it. Good question, Goddess. Well, it it, it depends. <laughs> depends on the airfield um and uh you know especially with the new tankers that we've got you know with the uh, the airbus a330 so they've got all the mod cons on board um but so it depends where they're going back to land to and, and um what facilities do, are I at right? the station well, they do, but am i right in thinking can they use them he asks uh, a leading question I, I don't know whether bryce norton has got auto land or any of that sort of stuff so I don't know. It's a simple answer on that one. Mm. Or the, hey, or not auto land, but not Bryce nor auto land. You know the cat, the lowest yeah, yeah. category of yeah, yeah. 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 But with the um, there was a boomer drop the other day, wasn't there? I saw on the news there was uh, queue scrambled and uh, it had pictures on uh, I, I I think it was the BBC News of uh, of just people videoing of whatever they were doing, you know, putting their shopping in the car when the, the boom was dropped and they suddenly went wide-eyed, like, what the hell was that? Yeah, I think it was over Cambridge, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Was it? Well, I told, I told you about that time when we were moving into our house. in We just moved into Sumter in, the, uh, in South Carolina in the U.S. And uh, we had some mates over and uh they were helping us move some stuff off of a truck there was a, a sofa had arrived and the boys dropping the stuff off were actually from the air force base up the road where i was due to go and work and uh, our house was under the local range point set range where um they do high altitude bombs low altitude bombs strafe you know all sorts of stuff and just as we were carrying a sofa into the house there was this massive explosion at which point, me and uh, it was Rog, Rog Holmes, um, dived into a hedge and kind of looked out <laughs> and were like, what the hell happened there? It sounded like the whole of the back end of the house had blown up. The brave air folks, Commodore again. Yeah, exactly. Leaps under <laughs> the table. <laughs> yeah. His cocktail, yeah. His cocktail went everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, were, there was martinis all over the place. <laughs> as Fearless. These two blokes, as these two blokes walked past, they went, it's all right, we're in the Air Force. That was a sonic boom from the jets overhead. We were like, yeah, we knew that. Uh, I was just checking the pipes. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I tell you what, being underneath it, because uh, they were directly above in the range on a, on what a park you'll remember it, a high altitude release bomb, where uh, it, you could it could be pretty sporty in a slippery F-16. And uh, yeah, they, uh, someone had gone supersonic, and genuinely, I thought a bomb had gone off. It was that loud. So you can see the wow. uh, see why people would be big, wide-eyed about the whole thing once they'd heard it, putting their shopping in the boot of the car. Ah. Hey, now, uh, going back to fog and uh, diverting and all that sort of stuff. I, uh, now, the other thing that can prevent aeroplanes landing is dust. And uh, sort of in operational theatres, there was certainly, when I was over there, I had a really quite hair-raising moment when uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful blue skies day. And I was off with um, a colleague of mine doing a patrol um looking after a, a convoy and escorting a convoy uh and i'd had to take off earlier than uh, than uh, my mate um and he'd he'd arrived about 15 minutes later anyway i sort of start going home on minimum fuel and get told here over the radio you need to come back now because um there's a dust storm um and you need to divert I said, well, I can't divert. So the diversion airfield was beyond where I was going. I said, I don't have the fuel to divert. Have you got a tanker? And they said, no, we haven't got a tanker. Huh. I was like, oh, okay. So um, I just said to the air traffic controller, an American guy, <clears throat> um, can you just feed me in and then just bring me down as low as you can? And luckily we had GPS in the airplane because when we got to the low as you can point, and luckily, again, we were in a Harrier, so we could fly pretty slow. So I slowed down as much as I could. Still couldn't see the airfield at 200 feet. So just kept going in and asked the guy to keep talking to me about where the airfield was. And out of the dust loomed the tail of an Illusion 76. Um, and I knew where that was parked on the airfield, although I couldn't see the runway. And so I could then go right and left, and then the runway sort of loomed out I don't know, 50 feet oh, or so something first, like that. The first thing and you I, saw was the tail of an aircraft. Yeah. Wow. That's so, awesome. So you must have been awesome. quite close were to you, it. Dunk, were you on the Reds when we divved into somewhere in Saudi when we were heading back west? Yeah. And we, we were trying to get... And the the diversion, I'm, I, I, a bit vague, much later, but we we still arrived, I think, with probably 10, 10 hawks as information. And it was sort of okay, but it was gloppy viz you know maybe sort of 3k but just kind of getting worse into taboo and wasn't it was it could have been and it, it was one of those it was when when you then look in different directions it suddenly gets really bad but i remember we just broke into the circuit turned downwind and in normally you're quite close behind the jet in front of you land after each other do an oval sort of circuit and you just follow the jet in front of you but none of us could really see the jet ahead and it all was pretty smeg and we landed sort of part the jets and it was like you're wearing kind of a yellow visor where the world looks really weird or an orange one and it was like the the the, the bizarrely the aircraft almost looked green because of the amount of dust and stuff and probably <laughs> got worse as we tacked it in but it was spooky and utterly weird the only time i've ever sort of flown in such bad weird visibility i guess it was a yeah, it must have been a dust storm coming in well yeah exactly and you can you can you can feel it in your teeth can't you it, it yeah. It gets into oh, your exactly. mouth. Yeah. Gets yeah. And uh, I, I'd said on the radio to my uh, my mate that was uh, still out there because he had more fuel than me, come back now. But he had to do the same thing. He didn't have enough fuel to divert. 
and and I'm sure I looked exactly. Hang a left at the illusion. You can't miss it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was uh, white as a sheet when he uh, when he got down there, and I'm sure I was as well when I got out. It was a bit. Uh, no. Don't, you... Do you remember? Do you remember flying in Norway, where you'd have a guy in the tower? So we'd always have a duty pilot in the tower because a lot of Norwegian flying is. So the airfield colours, red is really bad, which is what we're talking about here. You know, the, the, the weather's on the deck. You can't see anything. Um, blue is the uh, is the nicest. And um, Norway would go from blue to red in about 10 seconds as a big snow shower would turn up on the airfield. And so time and time again, you'd have a weather recall saying there's snow inbound. Everyone needs to get back. And being Norway, a lot of the other bases were closed for snow as well. And you'd thrash around, you'd turn up, you'd land. Um, and I remember landing with the snow shower starting the opposite end of the runway. And I, I couldn't taxi off the runway. It was so bad. You had to sit there and wait until the worst of this snow shower had come past. Because the hardest thing was trying to find your way around after you'd landed. Oh, I'm not- yeah. I, I never did. Uh, I, I was at uh, I was at Wharton doing the sort of uh, we called it case white, but one of the you know early Eurofighter kind of getting used to the aircraft. Probably had about three or four hours on one of my trips, and it was we were doing night flying. It's probably my first night trip, and it was forecast for a bit of fog, but it was a pretty great night, and we were airborne and stuff. And then suddenly you could see this sort of bank, even though it's night, of fog, and we ended up obviously it's light winds in fog, so we just landed on the opposite direction. And, you know, two-thirds of the way down the runway, taxiing was quite difficult. But, you know, it was fine to get the aircraft in, but we couldn't have landed the other way. Massively localised, you know, it can be. But that's weather, you know, it's something that can bite you. You generally have a, well, you always have a diversion that you know is somewhere that you can go. But like Dunk says, if they change in the air, every now and again, you haven't got fuel to get there, you know, and that's, they, you're poorly placed. Yeah. Uh, Dunk, you just mentioned the the... Aleutian, did you say 76? Or no, the... I think it's 76. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 76. Candid. Is it Candid? Candid. Candid, yeah. In Manchester, at least we used to, I don't know if it still lands now, but we we used to have a weekly service from the Antonov, I want to say 225. Is the 225 the two engine, uh, the four engine or the six engine? The four engine version. Okay. Which is a se- severely cool aircraft. Where was that was, going, is, JB? Is that a transport aircraft, JB? Yes. Yeah, the, massive. The, con, the Condor, I think, isn't it? No, the yeah. Condor is the six-engine one. So there's a four-engine yeah, yeah. one. And I'm not sure if that's a... Two, is it maybe it's a 223 or something like that? But it's, no, I think it's 225. Um, so we've got that one that, that that's come into Manchester. And I also saw one, believe it or not, when I landed in Cape Town. And that was extremely exciting for everyone on the aircraft. Well... Me, not everyone else on, on, on the aircraft. But it was very exciting. It was very exciting to see one. They had a lot of Russian hardware out in Afghanistan. Um, and they had the, uh, uh, my, um, I can't remember the name of it, but they had the huge, the biggest helicopter in the world. Oh, the, the MI-8. The hey, Halo, is it? Yeah, massive, ink, just enormous machine. And they also had the um, the six-engine version of what you were talking about, which has got... Like a, it's got a strange tail on it, hasn't it? It's got it like has. a twin boom tail. Oh yes, I know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they also had these Illusion seventy sixes um, that looked like they were um, that they were sort of mercenary. They might well have been sort of mercenary machines. They were absolutely knackered. You would mm. never ever get in one. They just looked so beaten up that you know some. Uh, what was the um, 
uh, what was the CIA outfit that uh, what was Air the, America? Air America. That it looked like Air Russia. <laughs> <laughs> but these things would pitch up and uh, and sit on the pan and then uh, and within with regularity. You think of the MI eight? Uh, is, is that the one? It's like a huge. It, it looks very, very agricultural, to put it politely. No, I don't think it is because that's the hip, isn't it? The, yes, the, the MI eight. No, we that's saw those. Big. It's much. Yeah, yeah they, they about, are big. I'm sure it's called the Halo. Yeah, I think you're right. It's the Halo. The well, I went and sat in a um, in a um, in the hip uh, over in Sri Lanka. The oh. Sri Lankans had them. There's an MI twenty six. We just uh, we're we're just throwing those names out. There no, no, it is it is the it is the the, the MI twenty six definitely. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's bloody Sorry. massive. Yeah. Uh, what I like about them is they always seem to make like um, they they all seem to look slightly different compared compared to the very clean Western aircraft. So they're always a bit beaten up, and they're always belching out some sort of black smoke. Yeah, yeah. But the, I think the, that's the Russian concept, isn't it? They are all their even their jets, their fighters are rugged for want of a better word you know they yeah. can operate snow and dust and they're just well you know rugged aircraft that will you know take a beating well it, it's funny you mention that have you seen on the mig 29 they have inlet covers so when you're taxiing yeah. they have the air come through the top of the aircraft yeah and inlet, i mean yeah. i think that's just a, a very clever a, a very clever little idea well, because their, you know, their runways are so, we call it FOD, foreign object damage. But, you know, stones, anything, certainly F-16 Typhoon with the intake underneath you. It is like a hoover. You know, you literally hoover the airfield to keep it clean. But stones <laughs> and any bits of metal and nuts and bolts going through, you know, a 1.5 million pound engine is not good for it. So, you know, NATO bases are beautifully clean of FOD, whereas Russian ones... They're just not the same, you know, and that's why if they didn't have things like that, they would trash their engines all the time. Uh, and that voice there is Parky. How, uh, <laughs> how are you, mate? <laughs> yeah, that's the longest intro ever, I think. <laughs> or wait to be introed. <laughs> uh, did your heart skip a beat when you heard about the, the, the intercept over, Lon- uh, uh, over L- London and Cambridge? Did you wish it was you? I, you know, we were saying about a question and it all came. I couldn't have had a better introduction because that, before we start, I said, I've got a bit of a, a question I'm going to ask the boys. It might induce a bit of conversation because we're sure we already know what we're talking about. But it was to do with that. And, yeah, it was, you know, the boys cleared high speed. So, you know, whatever it was, an aircraft that wasn't behaving or wasn't uh, talking to the right people, the boys were told to go intercept it rapid. And, you know, you know things are serious when you're cleared high speed which means you can go supersonic over land. And as uh, most of uh, Cambridge found out, you know, as we talked about, the boom can be quite impressive. And, uh, and that's what it was, yeah. Uh, and what, how high do you need to be? Or does it not matter when, that, when you make that boom? So uh, I may as well go. This is so the, the, when we were discussing this, we were just talking about so, you know, the boom and stuff. So I was talking with James, so he's going through pilot training at the moment, and my wife. So it's almost that sort of thing. What's that about then? So, you know, the speed of sound, the sonic boom, when you go through the sound barrier, just the noise of the aircraft going through the sound barrier, faster than the speed of sound makes a boom, as the shock wave makes that noise through the air mass. Clearly, if you are lower, and, you know, I think, you know, the, the 
the uh, car that they're trying to build is it bloodhound or whatever you know their plan is to go supersonic yes. at low level and the Eurofighter, i guess we can certainly the f3 you can go supersonic at low level you know it's uh you know and if you went there's videos you can google you know youtube uh you know f18s going past a, a carrier at low level it's a hell of a boom and you can see the you know the the supersonic shockwave on the aircraft so i'm sure it has to be noisier the lower and the closer you are i just thought the physics of that don't know uh, on that one but my question was going to be and maybe start with dunk you know is a qfi and very very knowledgeable aviator <laughs> but just on the uh, just it was really stupid we were then talking about well you know what is what is the speed of sound it's mac one what is mac this you know this thing and how does that vary and you know we were talking about you know going up with height and and uh and, and how the mac number varies so you know your indicated airspeed the amount of molecules as you go up the atmosphere is very very thin so you're going for the same amount of particles of air you're going much much faster so you know an airliner might only be doing 250 knots indicated but if he did that at low level he would be going twice the speed possibly when he's up high and jb you probably understand all this stuff i don't know no but i don't maybe Duncan just ex- just explain mac number to us as a start of the 10 so just <laughs> so, <laughs> so just before it, it would be nice if you'd have uh, if you'd have, no yeah, that's the have, thing so, but, uh, but you're right but i guess the speed of sound um, it exactly as you've said, it depends on, you know, the, the thickness, the, the amount of molecules that it's having to pass through, isn't it? So and it depends on what the uh, the Mach number or the um, the Mach number will always be the same. It'll say one, um, whatever you are, whether you're at low level or, or high level. And the change will be the airspeed that you've got on there, the indicated airspeed. The true airspeed should be um, about the same, I think, which is around about 600-odd miles an hour. I can't, 632 rings a bell, but I might have that slightly wrong. But that that's, you'll be going the same, the same rate over the ground at Mach 1. It's just that your airspeed will be different. So yeah, let me, let exactly. Just... Now, go with that. Now, Dunk, the, other, the thing that it said, though, when we looked at it, Actually, the function of Mach number when you go supersonic, it's actually, rather than I thought it would be thinner air, that's just going to make it easier to go supersonic, if you see what I mean. But in the book, you Googled it, and it said, actually, it was temperature was actually the key is temperature. And the lower the temperature, the molecules are less active, so sound doesn't travel less. So because it's freaking cold up at height as well, that minus... 50 degrees or whatever it is up at height that it's the, the the equation of mat numbers is a clever geezer that invented this stuff is to do with temperature as well hang on, hang on. we just need to all calm down a bit so you've got four you've got four measures of speed there and i don't know what all these measures necessarily mean <laughs> so you've got to be fair jb i've got absolutely no clue what they're talking about either so <laughs> yeah but you have people for this it's fine uh, so we've got the mac number You've got your indicated airspeed, you've got your airspeed, and you've got your ground speed. Why don't you explain those four concepts before you try and explain exactly how they relate to each other? So, <laughs> yeah, your indicated airspeed is just, you know, on the, it's like the speed I want a car. So when you're on the ground, and you're doing 250, the amount of molecules coming through your, generally your pitot, so it measures the pressure 
the faster you go, the more pressure on a dial, and it tells you the speed you're doing. That's the indicated airspeed. Okay. So if you can imagine, if you put your hand out of a car driving along, you stuck a hand out the window, and my son explained this to me, how he was taught it, you know, in Mac number. If you were in a speedboat and you're doing 25 knots in that speedboat, you put your hand out and your hand gets blown back a little bit. If you were to put your hand in the water, it would feel like your hand was being wrenched off. Yes. Because it is a denser, that fluid is denser than the air. Yes. But your speed hasn't changed at all. And that's kind of what it is like going up at height. Your speed doesn't change, but the it's much it will show you going slower because there's less air up at height. So so maybe another way of thinking about less it, we, we then, yeah, the pressure there. But we then Googled um, James May having a flight in a U2. Yes, I've did. seen that. You know, don't know when that was. You probably remember that. So he went up to 70,000 feet. And you can actually see, because James went, well, a U2, that'll go supersonic, won't it? It's like, no way, mate. It's like a glider. The wings would come off that U2 if it went supersonic. No way. And I happen to know, I can remember talking to some of the boys, chatting to a U2 pilot, and it was something, and it is the top Mach number that a U2 can go is about 0.7 Mach. Yeah. So at low level, it can go, you know, quite fast, you know, maybe about sort of 400 miles an hour, which is 0.7 Mach, a, a seven-tenths of the speed of sound at low level. But when he goes up into that thin temperature, cold air at height, 0.7 at 70,000 feet is about 100 miles an hour indicated. His, the amount of molecules he's pushing through his little uh, indicated airspeed. So, and we actually froze the screen. And it was say he's doing 100 in his HUD, 100 knots, but it's 0.7 Mach. And I do, do you remember, God, as I can always remember, when we sort of got the typhoon and we could go up to 50-odd thousand feet, which we used to regularly, We'd go at 50,000 feet. If we went above, I seem to remember it was about 220 knots, we would go supersonic. But 220 indicated, that is quite slow for a typhoon. And the alpha, when we talked about this one before, the angle of attack, it's getting maybe a bit technical, but that was starting to build. So we were almost, we're flying nearly supersonic, but we're actually, we, you know, we, because we're over land, we can't go supersonic. So we have to stay subsonic, but we cannot go any slower or the, 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 spe- the, the aircraft is beginning to fly too slowly with the amount of particles of air up there. Wait, wait, I need to work this, uh, uh, work this out now. So uh, my first thought was, your indicated airspeed, what a rubbish instrument. Because, uh, well, because the higher you go, the less accurate it becomes. So you need to kind of reference that against um, your altitude. Yes. Then what you so, told me so in a typhoon that... on auto throttle, so you on, you had an auto throttling in typhoon. So you would generally just fly indicated on the auto throttle below. God is what do you reckon about ten, fifteen thousand feet, and then you'd always fly Mac above that. So and yeah. you would the indicated airspeed. Just let me go back to this a second. You said the indicated airspeed was low. Now, does that mean when you're higher up, you need to fly faster to avoid stalling? Yes, technically. Correct. That, so that's why it doesn't so mess. That, yeah, that's yes, why you need it. that relationship, JB, because um, ultimately, as the guys have said, you know, it, the, it, it's pressure over the wings giving you the lift and that sort of stuff that um, it, you're not going to get because the air is thinner. And so you need to understand your indicated airspeed because that's the thing that's going to keep you airborne. Well, However, well, I never knew that it is different 
um, and true airspeed is essentially your speed through the air as your speed over the ground would be. Ground speed could be different to true airspeed because you might be flying into a wind um, and, uh, you know, not going as and fast. there's a billion other airspeeds as well. There's, there's, there's calibrated airspeed. Oh, all yeah, sorts yeah. Of stuff. So you ah. get, there's, there's a lot where they actually take out some of the variables then they that, that, that you can uh, amass in how these uh, airspeeds are calculated. They go, right, we'll take that out and we'll take that out and that's calibrated. But... Um, going back to the U2, because that's an interesting story. I remember as well, same deal, but uh, just to, um, uh, to to show the sort of level that these guys had to concentrate, um, that the difference between the stall, so the lowest airspeed, and the that they could fly when they were at 70,000 feet or whatever um, altitude they were at, and overstressing the aeroplane such that it became... Uh, you know, it broke the aeroplane was about two miles an hour. So they they had a two knot difference and they had to fly within two knots. Otherwise, they were either going to stall or overstress the aeroplane. Is this on a U2? Yeah. On a U2, so, yeah. So what Dunks just said, that's why you could almost work out. I wonder what the ceiling of a U2 is. And I don't know if it's, you know, does the U2 still fly or is it out of service? No, it's the, uh, the Dragon Lady still, still flies. Still, still yeah. around. Yeah. So that's probably why it is, you know, fairly secret and nobody knows i don't know how high it actually flies but what dunk just said when when you looked at that thing on james may you could see it was flying at 100 and it stalls at about 70 something or other so it wasn't at its peak height so maybe it'll go up to 80 odd whereas dunk just said top speed because it can only go this 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 is 0.7 mac it cannot go a low level that's 400 but a height at when the air is so so thin that is possibly, I don't know, um, at 80,000 feet, that might be 74 knots indicated. Hang on a... But the thing will stall at 72. Do you know what I mean? So you've got such a tiny, you either overspeed or you fall out of the sky. Right. So this is a question which I've never even thought of, but I think you've kind of answered it. Is the limiting factor of a U2's height the thinness of the atmosphere? Uh, of, of the atmosphere? And um, um, when that air, it can no longer get the airspeed needed to go over the wing, the indicated airspeed. I would say yes. Yeah, because otherwise it might depart. I mean, it's difficult to know because you do, there will be other factors that mean, you know, the performance of the engine, et cetera, that, it, you know, it can't get any further thrust to enable it to overcome the fact that the air is so thin. So there may be other factors in there. But it, it could well be that controllability is one of the is, is the limiting factor. But ultimately, that was one of my favourite missions in the uh, in the F sixteen. We did it in um, when we were doing Southern Watch uh, just in two thousand and one, <clears throat> and uh, we would uh, as a, a wild weasel. So we'd be carrying the uh, high speed anti radiation missile, the Harms. We'd be following around the U two at a distance behind it. Um, uh, as it as it did its uh, you know sort of photography runs around the place, um, ready to shoot anyone who was going to shoot at it. But it was really cool because the thing was ridiculously difficult to find on radar, especially an F sixteen radar because of the altitude it was at and and uh, just because of the nature of the aeroplane. And oh dear, what happened there? Yeah, what happened there? Someone didn't like your dip, goddess. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's probably George, my my son, uh, on his Xbox. I'll close the door. <laughs> <laughs> that was 
That was the uh, that was the FBI breaking into the wrong house <laughs> trying to stop the story being told. Um, yeah, they're but, very uh, quick, aren't they? Blimey! Yeah. All we said was you two top high. But it yeah. was um, but it was flipping brilliant because it was a real game of cat and mouse as to you know uh, the guys who were following you in when they were going to go to the tanker when we were going to go to the tanker how you were going to do the handoff how you were going to find the U two what he was saying on the radio uh, and so on so uh, yeah uh, massively enjoyable and and an amazing aeroplane considering I guess it flew in the fifties did it the the first version of it yeah yeah I think the fuse the fuselage is actually from a Starfighter isn't it. It's a, uh, it's a mental starfighter oh, with the it? same middle section. And instead of the smallest wings in the world, the biggest wings in the world. And if you look at the tail and everything, it's kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the design tail. So that is, I guess, would that be early starfighter, early 60s, late 50s, early 60s? Yeah. I, I got scrambled in Cyprus once we were doing Q um, and got scrambled to intercept. It turned out to be a U-2. And it was on a Phantom in sort of, I guess, in uh, I don't know, 1990. And, you know, a two-tank Phantom we got up to, I don't know, maybe the high 40s, and the old girl was falling out the sky. And eventually we got sniffs of the radar, and he was, but he was above us. And then we I got tally on this U2, saw the thing. And it was, you know, three miles away above us. <laughs> and we were, you know, the met was like, well, it's a U2. You know, we will not give you the tell number of this bad boy. You know, it's just, it was ridiculous how high this thing was. Unbelievable. Now, well, Gary Didn't Powers you... was shot down in 1960, by the looks of things. There, there you go. go. So, uh, clearly, 50s. It was, yeah, like, yeah, 50s, yeah. Now, that might have been the first trip, though. <laughs> Uh, that was uh, that was the it was the Skunk Works aeroplane, wasn't it? Same as the SR seventy one. Yep. U two. So it was the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works that, uh, that yeah. designed it. So I'm just trying now. To hey, I tell you what, that is a book. If you haven't read it, we haven't done a book a, a book recommend for a while. I have. We, we did it. that one of the early ones, didn't we? Ben Rich, yeah. Skunk Works. Oh, did we? Oh, did oh well, in that case, I'm, I apologise for for reiterating it. But yeah, it's no. amazing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely worth a read. I tell you what, we have done though. Um, so we've got what a hundred plus years of flying experience between us, and not one of us between all four of us. I might what... add. Say again. Between all four of us, I might add. Yeah, yeah. Between yeah. all four. Of us. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, not one of us has been able to properly explain the relationships between IAS, indicated airspeed, true airspeed, ground speed, or Mach number. So any of you young pilots listening out there, it's not necessary, ground is it? school, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am, we I, might I have dumped that knowledge. I thought we did a pretty good job, I thought, I, didn't I, we? I, yeah, was very, yes. very formative. Crystal clear. As, I like, as long it's as JB complicated. Parky's not Parky's um, uh, explanation about the speedboat and the uh, I thought that was good. No, good. Well, only because that was what my lad was taught. That was his analogy, mm. and he was uh, you know he was trying to help me out, get head around it. But uh, Poor old yeah, dad. It, it, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. I tell you, the time flies by in our house. Yeah. <laughs> so we can have flying conversations. Yeah, very cool. So are you boys familiar? with the lightning intercepts of a U-2, allegedly that took place above 70,000 feet. Does that sound realistic to you? In a ballistic yeah. kind of way, I reckon. What do you think, Parky? Yeah, I reckon, yeah, I know the lightning went up to, you know, silly, silly heights. The, I mean, the, the, the U-2 boys wear full spacesuits. They're in, you know, astronaut stuff. So that if you were to lose your canopy, 
your rapid decompression, you know, it's it's okay in a spacesuit. For some lightning mate, you know, with his oxygen mask on, I think his eyeballs would bulge a little. You know, it would be <laughs> it, you would be uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of Total Recall. <laughs> exactly. Do have we have we done JB? You know, when we do the rapid decompression, have we ditted on about that before? You know, when we do pressure runs and we I we have, do sort of aeromedical training. I have never heard you talk about any of any of that. I didn't even know that that was a thing. So the yeah, no. so, so rapid rapid decompression. Essentially, you know, imagine if you're on your airliner, that would be pressurized, whatever it is, to I don't know eight thousand foot, whatever the cap in pressure is. It is pressurized, so you, your ears do pop a little bit as you go up and down. Yeah. But if, if you've seen on all the movies, if a window got smashed, the pressure would suddenly be great inside, and it would decompress. So everything would actually get sucked out the windows. You you know you kind of see the pressure change. So. It's a bit like for fast jet boys and, you know, for that lightning mate, as we talked about, if you, you know, canopies have, we talked about it before, didn't we? With CAD, you know, he lost his canopy airborne, but at height, rapid decompression, either your, your system fails. So the cabin pressure system might fail or, you know, canopy gets smashed or whatever, disintegrates. It decompresses. So we go to a chamber. So they, uh, they basically, they tell you the day before, you know, we're going to make sure you get a medical, make sure your ears are okay. And then, I think it used to be, what was it, twenty-five to 40,000 feet? Does that ring a bell, yeah. boys? You know? Yeah, definitely. Something. So it's not a brutal one. So, you you know, you suddenly, literally suddenly go from 25,000 feet to 40,000 feet. All of the gases in you expand. So it's Parky's dream. It's an absolute <laughs> dream for Parky. So you, you've generally been to a curry the night before and had a few beers, which you probably shouldn't do. And, in fact, uh, they specifically and they, they... tell you not to do that, don't they? So, of course, we all go and do it. <laughs> you, you see it as a challenge, Davey. But, um, yeah, and, and the, the weird thing is you're, you're looking at each other. So you're in this sort of tube, and there's maybe eight of you in it and a safety guy. And you've done hypoxia a bit, so you take the mask off and you, you learn to um, uh, kind of the symptoms of if you haven't got enough oxygen. So it depends how high you are. But, you know, again, we all take it as a challenge. You'll, you sh- you'll probably start to, you know, utterly not be able to make any sense and really start you know you can't write or you can't read but maybe after about a you know, minute they give you some and you, well it's quite interesting is it because they give you they they used to give us uh, tasks to do so for instance you might get a simple mathematical task well it's simple for most i found it quite yeah. tricky <laughs> you that, were struggling that, to begin with though duncan yeah, yeah. Yeah. 100% <laughs> oxygen <laughs> but it's just, count you know, to 10 duncan start at 100 <laughs> and take away Can you give seven? me more oxygen <laughs> 107 no take it away dunk uh, no seven uh, okay so uh yeah it uh, they would give you a task like that or they'd get you to draw and they also had um colored charts on the wall didn't they because some people would lose color perception and so what they were trying to do was just show you what symptoms you would have if you felt like headed um, as you became hypoxic, if it if it was not a, a a rapid decompression, but you just lost air pressure and lost the uh, the oxygen um, system, and, and, the- and that's definitely happened, JB. It, it, yeah. It's it's such a good tool to be able to recognise your own symptoms, you know, which is actually you feel a bit euphoric is the main one, I think, you know, a little bit lightheaded, almost like you had a couple of beers, and it's like that feels weird. And, you know, so long as boys then go, I'll check my oxygen and it could be that it's come disconnected or, you know, system malfunction. But that has 
definitely pay dividends knowing, you know, I know Typhoon boys who've had, you know, recognized symptoms and then gone to, you know, either that you generally have an oxygen bottle in virtual aircraft, an emergency oxygen. If the system's oxygen you suspect might be contaminated or, or you know, or, or something wrong with it. So it, it's good, good to do. Now, the higher up you go, I mean, it goes without saying, the more serious it gets. What is the most serious iteration of um, decompression? Well, I, can I t- can I tell a quick story first? It is my favourite ever decompression story. What? Which was of, of all of the it, decompression it, stories? Of all of the decompression yeah. stories, because there are many quite a few of people's head exploding <laughs> and uh, all of those. But it's uh, it's a, I'm not going to name him, but it's a guy that the three of us know very well. He's out of the air force now. Go on, but um, Say his name. no, go on. And uh, I, I, well, you'll see why in a minute. But um, he, t- I was absolutely crying when he told me the story. I wasn't there, but um, he, uh, so standard curry the night before the full, whatever it was, 40,000 foot decompression. Yeah. And, um, you know, so everyone's a little bit rough in the chamber. There's five of them in the chamber and they do all the pre-checks and everything. You get to whatever it is, 25,000 feet and they go, right, decompressing in five, four, three, two, one, boom. You know, the place clouds up, it goes misty, and they put a, it's like a marigold glove. Do you remember that on the, uh, in the wall yeah. in there? When you decompress, this thing inflates to about nine times its normal size um, because of the the, uh, the pressure and the volume change inside the glove. So uh, obviously this is happening in amongst all of our bodies and everything. And they go, right, round the room, thumbs up if you're good. Number one, thumbs up. Number two, thumbs up. Number three, thumbs up. Number four, thumbs up. Number five, massive thumbs down. They go, number five, you're right. And he points to his guts and just, <laughs> and just says, no. And because oh. at the point of decompression, he'd fully let go. And, uh, <laughs> and Phil, his flying suit. With, <laughs> That's vile. With the, the remains of last night's current. <laughs> in this chamber and apparently you know the people are in there their eyes are starting to burn (laughs) (laughs) full smoke smoke of fumes on this thing everyone's like i just love the fact it's just a thumbs down (laughs) big thumbs down massive grin on his face and he's crapped himself That's disgusting. So, uh, so they they end up, you know, repressurizing the thing. People are flying out the side of this thing as soon as they open the door, going oh, <laughs> as they get out. And the funniest thing is, surely they must have been crying, laughing as well. Oh, though. Can you imagine? How and, could you uh, hold it together? Uh, well, and I'll I'll tell you guys the name afterwards, but it wouldn't be a surprise to know that the fella. Once he'd tidied himself up, got changed out of all of his stuff, <laughs> had a shower and done all these things. Being him, he put it all in a bin bag and gave it back to the safety equipment guys in this bin bag and went, you may want to burn this. <laughs> Brilliant. It, 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 there is something exceedingly funny just because you're sitting opposite each other. So when, when it happens and, you know, you, you, you do get gut ache and obviously you're, all the air inside of you is expanded massively. And just looking at each other's eyes as it happens, it is a ridiculous, amusing experience that, that, that's happening as well. You know, you, you, I, the, the thing then, have you all done the pressure breathing? 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And you, and you have to sort of say your name. So <laughs> when you've uh, sort of 45,000 feet... To make, uh, again, help me out here, boys, but to make sure you get enough oxygen actually going into your body, you actually have to pressure breathe. So it is forced into you, JB. It's, and so you naturally, when you relax, you have to inhale and then you, you, you exhale the air, blow it out. If you, it's the opposite way with pressure breathing. If you relax, you just fill up with air and you have to force and speak and exhale so forcibly to get rid of the air. You then just relax for a nanosecond, and you're like the Mitchell man. You are, it's like somebody stuck a hose wow. down you with enormous PSI. And then they get you to speak as if you have to speak on the radio. And there is something so comic about seeing Dunk trying to talk, knowing that as soon as he stops, he blows up. And then people start laughing. And as right. soon as you start laughing, you are just filling up with air. And it is, it is ridiculously comedy. So, can I just interrupt you there? Because when you're talking about this, it has it has revived a memory. I've, I saw this show, God knows how long ago, but it was called. I want to say something like Michael Portillo, How to Kill a Human, and I'm pretty sure he got to the. What? what? Are you saw that actual TV program. Yeah. So he what goes channel around. Was that on JB? It's BBC ages <laughs> ago. The, the dark web, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's quite sexy. Anyway, um, he goes around. He goes around all the ways you can kill a person. Visits Amer- America. Obviously, they've got death sentence there. The different ways. What? I mean, does he go through snowblowers? Um, no, he's car- looking at legal ways to uh, execute prisoners and what people oh, right, do. Okay. And and all the ethical um, contortions which go with that, right? And I'm pretty sure they come to the conclusion that the most humane way to kill a person and how he nearly dies is in a decompression chamber at 90... Sorry, at 29,000 feet or something like that. And he can't stop laughing, which is when they had to de-repressurize him. 
Oh, uh, so yes. that, that's probably okay. a hypoxia thing. Hypoxic, yeah. Yes, I think now, yes, I think that makes sense now. The Which is why we do the training is because yeah. you don't know it's happening. It's so insidious that you 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 just you've got to be able to and everyone has different symptoms, but you need to recognize your own symptom um, or your own symptoms. And um, and that's why they do it, because it's not the same for everyone. Um, well, I, I tell you, my my major symptom. So I really do know with coming on um, is I feel brave. Yes, well, that is very unusual. <laughs> but Tim, yeah, well, that's so out of character. You should know that. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. As soon as I start feeling brave, I'm checking oxygen going 100%. They repressurize you. So if if you heard a supersonic shockwave and you looked up and went, I wonder what that was, you know you're hypoxic. Yeah, if I'm not on a hedge, something's gone off. It's like um, uh, uh, Dunk's hyperglycemia. Oh no, that's yeah. dangerous. Oh, that yeah, no, that, that is, is actually dangerous. Yeah, yeah, don't go near him. Yeah. So, is everyone's symptoms? I... Are everyone's symptoms individual? I, I would yeah. say that the, the, they kind of are a little bit. It's a bit like you know, if you're drunk, are they all the same? You know, some people get quiet, some people get loud. Some yeah, people, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of like that. I think most people feel lightheaded. I think well, some I guys, think, though, some guys is, really like it, said. don't they? And some, you yeah, know, some guys thing, get clammy, it? and and it's an unpleasant feeling whereas i don't know if it's half and half some people are like i love it it's a great feeling you know i, I, I didn't We've love used... i could i could work through it you know the last time i did it they, they they've changed it slightly where you're not in a decompression chamber they they stick you in a in a sort of hawk trainer and you're wearing an oxygen mask and they start decreasing the oxygen flow that you're getting and um uh, you know I, I i have this sort of a feeling that you know i kind of do feel you know, it's almost the single beer buzz you start feeling. But then I'm kind of flatlined for quite a long time before I start going downhill, which is bad because, you know, I need to know that beginning one um, because I can live with it for a little bit or for a while. But then when I hit the wall, I go downhill fairly quickly after that. Ah, how interesting. I had no idea that. They, oh, now you mention it. It makes sense. that There's a thing. But I had no idea that you, you even trained for it. Well, a there's a lot of people, aren't they, who feel over, overconfident and euphoric. And that's the problem is you've got to fight against that because you're feeling, you know, as God has said, invincible. Hey, this is great. Feeling good. And then suddenly you're you you're can't asleep. work controls anymore. Frankie. Hey, uh, and then the, the, the final one, JB, in terms of while well, we're on yeah, physiological we... training and stuff. Have we talked about centrifuge before? Yes, a little bit. And G, so so that, that's the final one, you know, so where you and all the boys now go fast jet, you know, obviously putting G, you know, like and we did. I remember because it was the James Bond analogy, didn't we? We, we were in Roger Moore gets spun around. Yes. But that's the other thing that the boys then have to do, which is pretty brutal. You know, that's G because all the blood obviously pulling to your to your feet in the G suit. But you have to strain and fight. Uh, and, you know, basically get beaten up in a centrifuge for sort of uh, so that, 10 minutes or so. So that used and, to be um, you know, in Farnborough, did it not? It's now, I think, at Cranwell, isn't it? The centrifuge. They got yeah, one there? Yeah, they have, yeah, we did Cranwell. talk about this. Yeah, we spoke we did. about it. Yeah, we did. Because yeah. I went and did it. I remember we, we, we spoke about this, the new centrifuge, which is pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, so you do all of that physiological training, JB, and then you do the other aspects of um, parachute jump training without actually jumping out of an aeroplane. Um, sea training, where you get thrown in the sea with all your kit on and dragged behind the boat so you can get out of it and get into your dinghy those sorts of stuff and and land survival as well so all of that 
whilst you're going through sort of basic training just to uh, either pre-basic training or in basic training to uh, to get you used to all of these sorts of things that might either happen to you in an emergency or, you, you know, end up with you outside of the aeroplane that you started in. Incredible the, uh, the, the Dutch, I remember, this is now talking a uh, drill story, but I don't know if I mentioned this one, but it just made me laugh. The Dutch, a really clever system, they used to do a parasail for their yearly i think it was always yearly you do your power drills and you would you know behind a speedboat in a lake you'd have all the kit on and they had loads of lakes in holland and you'd get airborne on this sort of speedboat dragging you around on this parachute and it would get you up to i don't know maybe a hundred foot and then the little matey boy would sort of shout up at you on a, on a speaker go right do your power drill so you'd inflate your life jacket which was more of a rubber ring kind of thing bizarrely at the time in the f-16 kit but you'd then dangled your, your the ejection seat would have a dinghy so you drop the dinghy and that would auto inflate below you and then they would reduce the speed of the speedboat and you would float down land in the water and do your power drills and then another mate would go behind the speedboat and there may be six of you bobbing in the water and i watched this dude do the same thing and he floated down he'd done his drills he had his dinghy below him as his dinghy is i don't know maybe 10 meters below him it hit the water he landed in the dinghy. He didn't go through the bottom of it, just landed in the dinghy and just went whoop, out and kind of like was completely dry. And went, hey, <laughs> yeah. And all the little boys around him, were just, we just applauded him. It was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Isn't it just? <laughs> well, we've been chatting for 54 minutes now, boys. So why don't we get some questions? That was good, and without lifting the uh, or you know getting behind the curtain for uh, for everyone listening, clearly we plan all of those segues in advance as to uh, as to where we're going to go. Tell you what, we really um, got into nitty gritty of tall boy bombs, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, well, there, there, there was, there was save no, that for another time. <laughs> there was no there, there, there was no stone le- uh, left unturned there, <laughs> and the way we managed to make it sound like we had no idea what Mac number was. That was clever. <laughs> that was very clever. Fair play, boys. Fair play. What, what Perfect. Right, here's a couple of questions from this evening. Thanks to everyone who's, uh, uh, who's sent a question in the, uh, in the last couple of hours. Um, one here from Alex Dean, um, Plastic Pilot One. I hear a lot of stories of how intense advanced fast jet training at Valley is. What would you say are the biggest challenges for students there and how much has it changed since you did the equivalent course? Well, I guess the first thing to mention is ITV did a really good series. I thought it was really good. Was it last year or the year before? Yeah. I think the year before yeah. last, which may well be available on Catch Up on, on YouTube. But I think that is really good at showing what the uh, what the students go through. But uh, over to you guys. I think Dunk should start, really. He's the, he's the qualified flying instructor. Well, how much has it changed? You know, as the uh, the kit has uh, improved and we've got Hawk T2 now, uh, we've got Texan now, and uh, and indeed we've got uh, Prefect, then it, it's it's changed subtly. I'd say the foundation, the very basics of it has, has stayed very much the same in that you are uh, learning to operate faster and faster aeroplanes and you, you learn to fly initially in the elementary and to a certain extent the basic uh, stages 
of it and then as you get towards the end of your basic stages you're then starting to venture into operating the aeroplane so using the systems on them and that's where the difference is now with the modern aeroplanes that we've got with the uh the texan uh, you can simulate weapons and weaponeering on it it's difficult to do combat in it you could do it but it doesn't really simulate combat um as in jets because they turn so tightly these little airplanes it's like a knife fight in a phone box so you, you you can't really simulate combat until you get to hawk so when you get to the hawk now you are um the difference between when we went through and i think you know you could group things like the nat prior to the hawk and and then the hawk t1 that uh, the three of us went through on um, very little to it just had um, the aircraft instruments in it you might have a gun sight in but very little other than that and you were then learning to both fly and fight the aeroplane whether that be weapons uh, onto the ground or doing air-to-air -air combat <clears throat> and basic fighting maneuvers that we've spoken about before now we've got hawk t2 uh, it's got synthetic radar. It's got threat simulation in there. So there's now um, it's a, a much better way of training and you're able to load up um, those pilots, not only with having to think about flying the aeroplane um, <clears throat> on the edge of its envelope um, and uh, to the highest of its performance, but you're also having to think about fighting. And also now you've got much more complicated weapon systems that you can train on that you can train people to be able to uh, manipulate the controls to simulate uh, different radar states etc etc so the advancement in technology has meant that that we can train uh, pilots much further or much earlier in the training system to deal with those uh, those uh, not just flying the airplane but operating it Right, that's very good and comprehensive. I know we did the uh, we did the podcast on that. We should have just said that, Dunk. Yeah. Yeah, because you were rubbish on the previous one, Dunk. Well, I was... yeah. well, I've <laughs> that. That. I'll try and think about Mac number for next time. <laughs> if you could, please. Hey, here's a good one. Hey, a, a good answer, Dunk. Nice one. Uh, this one from uh, Darren Hodgson. Um, John Nickel, RAF, uh, is reliving his Desert Storm 30 at the moment. And he is on Twitter. If you get a chance, follow him on Twitter and uh, you can uh, you can see him um, talking about each day as it comes, getting to the point that it, him and uh, John Peaking were shot down. Um, what were you doing at the time and did it have any impact on how you perceived your RAF career? And that's a biggie for me and Dunk this week. Yeah. Or oh, last week, I think it was. Why last week? Um, We'll come to that in a second. But, Parco, what were you doing when uh, the Desert Storm kicked off? Well, I was on the Phantom, and I can remember exactly um, when I saw... Do you remember the front of the, you know, one of the papers? And it had, I think it was John, probably both their faces. I can remember John Peters. He was quite, you know, sort of looking at a side angle. And then, yeah, John Nichols had, was you know, sort of a bit bruised face and bashed up. And their face was on the front of the newspaper. And I read that newspaper article in the Falklands. And I remember, because I knew that both those boys, and, you know, had done tap weapons, I, I sort of knew where uh, John Peters. And it was like, 
oh my word, that's you know, that's John. He's if he's shot down, he's captured you know, da da da. And uh, and I saw that in in uh, a newspaper in the in the Falklands. So I was doing my sort of you know five week stint down there at the time. Um, uh, and yeah, just a, a squadron mate on the Phantom. Um, what were we doing, Dunk? Well, you were we at were, school. Uh... No, <laughs> close though. <laughs> we were at Royal Air Force College, Cranwell. Cranwell. So Godders and I on the uh, the sixth of January. Where are we? So uh, this time last week, um, were starting our Royal Air Force careers. Some were more successful than others. Um, but, uh, You're still See, you had a second go at that, Dan, didn't you? I did have a second go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's funny about, yeah. the, um, about the impact, though, because um, I don't, uh, Duncan and I were on the same flight, so we, had a, you know, we would have had a conversation about this, but um, I cannot we remember. the same room. Well, yeah, not we at the did. time, not at the time. It was yeah, a bit not late. at that particular time. But the... Um, but the the actual fighting kicked off, you know, clearly all of that stuff was going on out in the, uh, out in the Middle East. We were reasonably, I remember time before internet. So you're reliant on the main news. And I remember doing a, uh, we were what's called a bull night. So cleaning out our rooms, you know, you're absolutely scrubbing everything, making your, sure your bed's perfect. Then you sleep on your sleeping bag on your floor next to your bed. So you don't have to make it in the morning. And I remember it was somebody on our flight, dunk came around the corner and said hey the war has just started and we went "Ooh!" and i do remember having a conversation in the corridor about blimey you know this stuff is kind of real and do you remember over the following week we lost a few people on the course who left because you know i guess they hadn't considered the fact that you know we're a war going um military and you might be called to actually do something so uh, i can't yeah. remember how many but um greg it was green was it greg green i think greg was the, i was thinking of greg i think it was greg who came and told us because yeah, he was the, a he was an ex-nco wasn't he he was sort of a hairy and old he had mates NCO. out there yeah so uh, i think yeah he came around the corner he was uh, uh and and said yeah that's it we're at war it's like ooh, we've only wow. just joined yeah and then <laughs> I guess the thing for you. I thought me, you were saying Greg Green was the one that quit. I thought, blimey. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, no, he definitely wasn't. <laughs> but, um, I think, uh, and I think then one of the bigger issues, Dunk, is that again, no internet, no other than newspapers. When you're on IOT, initial officer training, you don't get a chance to have a relaxing breakfast and read the newspaper. And um, there wasn't much, if any, TV time at all. So um, we kind of missed most of what was going on in the uh, in the major press and the news from from what i remember done yeah we did I, the, but it really I, I don't know it must have been of course after the event but was it tvam did a um a whole piece on the tornadoes out there uh and it was to bon jovi's uh, um it was a bon jovi song um, living on a prayer or? on the steel horse i ride whichever one that oh. is but uh, anyway, it was uh, and it was uh, it was a pretty well put together film, which really, I think, uh, again, spurred us on to uh, to get to to be fast jet pilots. I, it really sort of it was quite inspiring to see yeah, that blasting uh, off. I, I think I think absolutely 100 percent that as well. You know, it, it, it did give you more inspiration. And I tell you what, if if you ever get a, a chance to hear either John Nick or John Peters, um, you know, my old boss, Dave Warrington 
talk about being shot down and captured, it is unbelievable. You know, I remember going to a combat survival rescue officers conference in about 94, maybe. And John Peters, you could have heard a pin drop in the room as he talked about his experience from, you know, the initial shoot down to being captured, being moved around, ending up in solitary, you know, all these sorts of being bombed, you know, all of these sorts of things. And, um, you know, what struck me from that one was at least three or four times, maybe more than that, in his presentation, in his speech, he said, at that point, I knew I was going to die. And, you know, not I thought I was, I knew I was. And you, I just remember being absolutely gobsmacked listening to this. Yeah. And only a couple of years ago, Dave Warrington um, talked about, uh, I got into um talk to the team that I uh, I worked with about his experiences and he, he was hit by uh, it was a low-level Roland uh, Roland missile and as it was his navigator that actually punched him out in the end but he remembered you know there was a huge explosion next to the aeroplane you know the canopy disappeared big light and flash and Dave says he remembers pointing towards the ground they're only a couple of hundred feet looking at this through the head-up display and just thinking oh that's it then and you know sort of drifting into unconsciousness at that particular point and then he wakes up on the ground wondering how the hell he got there but he, he you know a bit like john Pees was was really accepting when they thought or knew that hey that's it so the whole thing if you get a chance to speak to those guys if you get a chance to i know um john nichols doing a a, a book you know a He's done some brilliant books so far, Spitfire and Lancaster. But I think the next one's Tornado with a, with a few of these tales in. I think that'll be a brilliant one to uh, to listen to an audio book or, or to read as well. Yeah. Because it was definitely from the sort of Cold War that we were all geared to at the time. Suddenly the boys, you know, were out doing their stuff. And it was the Tornado Force initially who, and it was, you know, we, we talked about when we all got posted. So you sort of go your separate ways. But, you know, you knew the mates who, who went to fly the, fly the different aircraft. And... The uh, the Bruggen, I was at Wildenrath in Germany on the Phantom and Bruggen's only about sort of six miles away. So the Bruggen boys came over afterwards and, uh, you know, sort of got together their beers and they gave a bit of a presentation. And like you got us, I, I can remember just, you know, it was eerily quiet as the boys just explained what it was like they did. And the thing I remember was one of the guys, it was the first mission and it was just massive excitement and they're going to do it. Obviously a bit of fear, trepidation. Out they went at night and they were doing... The, the sort of essentially have to fly down the runway pretty much straight and level at a few hundred feet, not as low as they'd like to be, and lay this JP-233 to take out the runway. You know, it would fire down and create craters and do all sorts of stuff, a very clever weapon, but actually flying straight level and over, over an airfield, it's, you know, pretty high risk. And the boys went and, you know, the, I guess it was a train of tornadoes going in to attack this airfield. And from, you know, sort of 40 miles away, they could just see some of the boys had obviously gone through ahead and they just explained it was like it was lit up like daylight. You know, the, just the tracer, the explosions that, you know, and they had five minutes almost just looking at this going, you know, and it was on terrain following radar. The jet was flying itself sort of thing. It was just bizarrely surreal. And then, you know, once you're in it, just the carnage and then you're out the other side and then you know they came back and it was like holy shimoli and then it was like boys same again next night and yeah. then it, that really hit them like oh my god 
now we know what we've got you know and it it's just fascinating the human side of of you know of that just, sort of uh, warfare very interesting do you know what i can't get over the fact that they are able they're able to do that now the fact that they don't deploy that well they don't use the tornado actually but for a long time they, they didn't use the jp what, what, what what's it called the jp 233 two, i think two, three, yeah the um, the uh, the Aircraft runway denial. denial yeah yeah so the fact that they don't use that i wonder if that was actually a, a case that you can no longer do it because if you think about the systems that you have on ships like the goal like the goalkeeper system or the phalanx or um even the, is it the rheinmetall sky defender which um which which i've got is it defender uh, anyway i mean these things can shoot down <laughs> missiles uh flying at mac whatever it is I can't imagine that any tornado or anything flying low level now would have any chance. Sure. Well, I think the, yeah, I mean, I this think is 30 the, years ago, isn't it? You know, <clears> so it, it was, was, but the um, uh, the JP-233 was actually banned, though, because it was classified as a mine, I think. Yeah, the cluster munition uh, ban. Um, it, uh, it, was cl- it was then classified, I think it's Geneva Convention, isn't it, of a, of a banned weapon. So uh, that, uh, that went out the window. And I bet the boys were pretty pleased it did because, as you say, right, right, everyone, everyone go and fly straight and level over that heavily defended airfield. <laughs> right, okay, sir, I'm right off the There's got to be better ways of doing it. Have you seen, uh, I can't remember what the German system is now. Um, it's fairly famous. It's the oh, the, the air defence gun, which, um, Rhein, the Rheinmetall one, I'm sure it is. Have, has anyone got any idea what I'm talking about? None at all. We're all looking blank-faced. Eh, never mind. No, was, do you know what? I will save it until I actually read, read about it properly and, and can explain it. But they fuse each each bullet as it comes out of the muzzle, and therefore it explodes at different times. It's a ferocious weapon. I just think, mm. like, how on earth does anyone do anything with a kit like that about? I, well, definitely, I've seen, I've seen I've, RoboCop, so that's probably good good training for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You wouldn't be anywhere near it, Carl. You'd be yeah. way behind. Several countries behind. Hey, so if, if you want to read more about that, um, have a look at uh, John Nickel at John Nickel RAF's um, Twitter feed, and uh, and you'll see some more. Um, we'll go with one more, shall we? Uh, and I think this is a belter from uh, Dil Patel. Um, if you could pick an aviator from the past to have drinks with, who would it be, and why? Parko. I mean, we're lucky to have you pick Parko. had drinks with. <laughs> yeah, I'd pick Parky. Um, <laughs> we, we're yeah. lucky to have I mean, had drinks with a fair few of them. Can, can we? Can we pick who we? You know, one of those because for me that is the the no brainer. I had so many brilliant drinks. I know Dunk did too with. Uh, well, or the vets. It's, we we bang on about it, don't we? So many times, but uh, just amazing evenings that we've had and uh, definitely when you forge a bit of a friendship it's just super special but Jeff Wellham I could never ever ever get uh, bored of uh, uh, just just yeah, chewing the shit with Jeff you know just talking about aviation ditting on like we are now maybe not really knowing what we're talking about but enjoying doing it and uh, he was that that spirit that he had he absolutely loved that that crew and banter and um, and just that world of aviation and that camaraderie and yeah, absolutely wonderful. Uh, I, I, I miss dear old Jeff. Fabulous bloke. And what, what about someone, you know, someone you haven't met who would have been? You know, uh... That's a good question. You know, I, I would love to have, uh, you know, chatted to 
you know, um, the, the early NASA boys, you know, just we're talking about the speed of sound earlier, you know, and just it was. I, you, did you chat to Eric Winkle Brown? Have you, you met him, um, Godders? No, unfortunately, I didn't. He, um, I was going to get him to come back up to Lossie because he'd been a previous commanding officer at Lossie. But uh, unfortunately, we lost him. Um, just as I was taking command okay. uh, up no, there, maybe it was Jez. I, it was Jez Attridge actually that that, that met. Uh, and did you, no, Doug? I did. Yeah, I had lunch with him. Um, huh. Both uh, with him and John Bell actually, and um, which was which was fantastic. So yeah, well, I, I miss that. And there you go. That's so for me. Everything you're about to say. You fact, know, no, but, uh, no, sorry, it was Tony know. Iveson. Tony Iveson. So and and we're we're throwing these names out, but uh, just to reiterate what Parky says. I mean, we've been just so lucky to meet these guys. Um, uh, just amazing to sit in crew rooms or in bars and uh, and listen to some of their tales and uh, and what they did. Um, but uh, you know, again, we have been lucky like that. But I think Chuck Yeager has got you know Chuck Yeager's a to, great shout. You've got Chuck Yeager to be able to just have a chat with him and just you know just talk to to him about his experiences. It must have been astounding. Yeah. I, I, Chuck Yeager would be a good one, and obviously um, he uh, he departed for the crew room in the sky uh, just the December, middle of December, wasn't it? December twentieth, yeah. December last year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and along those lines, one person I would have killed to have a beer with was Robin Olds. Yeah. The um, so World War Two P thirty eights, P fifty ones, and then uh, Korea, then Vietnam as well. Um, and he only died a few years ago, but um, an absolute legend of a man. And anyone who'd ever met him said what a gentleman he was as well. And even up until, you know, into his 90s, he was always the last one to leave the bar, you know, loved that side of things. Um, I think he'd be brilliant. But you're right. There are so many, you know, so many of those Sailor Malan, you know, I'd always thought that uh, he'd be a good guy to go and see what he was actually like or some of the some of the aces uh i remember i do i did a um what they call a stand on a, on a staff ride on staff college out in the uh out in the desert in egypt and it was about hans joachim marseille who was he was killed in a measure in uh in the second world war out in uh out in egypt but was on track his curve of kills per fly tower was higher than anyone else and, you know, a real uh, character, apparently, on the ground, you know, kind of hard to control on the ground, um, proper, I guess you'd say, fighter pilots, fighter pilot. Um, and unfortunately, his engine seized and he ended up being, uh, apparently, he was killed by his, uh, as he bailed out, he hit the tailplane. Um, and, and that was the end of him. But, uh, you know, apparently legendary down on the ground. Um, there's so many of them, aren't there? Uh, just yeah. a little bit yeah. of a left field question here. But obviously, um, you guys spoke to so many veterans because, well, because you're in uh, the RAF. Have you ever encountered any of the Russian veterans or any of the German veterans? German, yes, but not not Russian. We've got a bit of a recording, haven't we, got us, of one of the German veterans. Um, I should should dig that out, Dunk. 
Yes, you should. <laughs> so uh, Goddard and I, uh, before all this dreadful COVID business came along, went to the Duxford Air Show and we did a um, we did a bunch of recording there. And I thought, I mean, I'm probably leading the witness, but I don't know what you thought. I thought it was pretty good, Goddard's. But it's remained on your iPhone ever since, hasn't it? So I Secret. think we should, we should dig it out. You I should will dig it out, dig it out actually, because I remember we spoke about it at the time, didn't we, on the on the subsequent pod after that. But an amazing guy who... yeah talked about you know seeing his friend go in on one of those big flying bomb things that the uh, they modified the measurements to go and carry uh um that you were supposed to d- detach from and it was essentially the german equivalent of a hey, uh, write to my wife and tell her that i love her kind of thing as he uh, as he then rode this thing in and uh, he was an amazing old fellow wasn't he yeah he was it was a very emotional time wasn't it i mean he was he was back there he was reliving it wasn't he god as when we spoke to him um and uh i you know don't wish to make light of it um and uh, sort of romanticize it because it was quite a, a harrowing part but uh, you know as you say jb it's fascinating to to see that human side of things um and and what happened he had a translator there because he didn't speak very much uh, very much english but uh, we'll try and um and and get that up <clears throat> um up on a our podcast at some point Dunk, do you remember the, uh, it was a Focke Wolf 190 pilot we met when we were in Canada doing an air show out there um, called Otto? Yeah, no, I wasn't there. Ah, it was 02. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. But he, I mean, real short story, Just he, he did a glider display, which was absolutely brilliant at the Toronto air show over the lake. And uh, you sort of got air towed, did his glider bit, and then just had enough energy after sort of looping entertaining the crowd to kind of glide into a field over water sort of crowd left you couldn't really see where he went and that was him and it, we met this guy and he was you know must have been i guess in his 80s sort of then um and it was just you know he had a quite a still had his german accent and we just sort of chatted to him but the, the short of it he, he said i was you know i was hit the youth glider went straight to the fockable 190 eastern front at the end of the war i had a mid-air collision with the yak i bailed out i broke my leg hit the tail as i think a lot did i was going to be executed but they said they'd interrogate me they were going to, i managed to escape uh, and i walked a thousand kilometers with a broken leg and uh, then emigrated to canada and it was uh, <laughs> wow you know <laughs> that's quite and, a cool still fly story on the it. yeah and, and exactly and you know it, again just the stories that are out there and we we often mention it you know if you, if you know any of these old boys just just talk to them and you will not believe some of the stuff you know that that they did and that was his story and we sort of, you know, yeah, we can't be that one. We all tell you what, glider to fucking Incredible. Wolf One Ninety is a is a bit of a step up, isn't it? Yeah, from a glider. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's a challenge for for one of you or for all of you. I'd like I'd like us just on the aviator stuff. I know we're talking about aviators of the past, but aviators of the present. If you can source us a swedish aviator who has flown the array of really cool swedish kits or a fr- or a english-speaking french aviator i would love to speak to them well we can probably get an english we'll see what we english, do because english-speaking french aviator yeah i mean there must be loads almost of, fact, all, of, all of them are english-speaking I, i'd guess yeah yeah the um well, that's our New Year's resolution, isn't it? To uh, to try and find some guests this year to uh, to dit on about um, indicated airspeed in different languages. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Magnum. Picard, <laughs> you can come out with his uh, his A two questions. Well, it's temperature independent. 
<laughs> I think I think he was an Austrian bloke, but that could be wrong. Who invented it? Oh God, I'll, I'll be quiet. Yeah. yeah. Didn't, didn't we once in, didn't, <laughs> didn't we once introduce Dunk as the only time he's seen a Mac number is on his razor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he flew Harrier. That's good. Yeah, that yeah, is good. I tell you what, there's a bunch of loads of different questions in here. We're going to have to do a podcast as well, where we just answer some of these flipping questions and just roll through these. Why don't you do one more? One right. more. Make it about hardware. Go on. Make it about hardware. Hang on, let me scroll through. Um... <laughs> Ian Savage, has anyone flown the Harrier? Question mark. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Two hours later. <laughs> um, how about uh, it's Ian again? Uh, the one underneath it. Has anyone done a carrier-assisted launch and trapped landing? Thoughts? Um, unless you've, uh, I, I'm, I'm owed one by the U.S. Navy after the last six months, but I couldn't go to the carrier because of COVID restrictions. But uh, Maybe that maybe I'll be able to do it in the next year or so. Would I don't know. Let, we'll find out. Would they let you on? Um, no, not in COVID land. No, but in like can you, imagine, like in can you imagine turning turning up and giving the entire carrier COVID? No, no, but in, no, but in normal times, could you just get an invite? Uh, well, you, who you be, are JB. You need to be kind of a big deal, JB. I, 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 well, it, I, I get <laughs> that. Organised the sort of socials that God has organised. Well, the, well, <laughs> my, well, my thought is that. The US Navy, unless I've got it wrong, don't they run dry ships? What would you be going yeah, there for? Yeah, exactly. Goddess couldn't stand that. Yeah, exactly. No champagne. No, yeah. no more TVs hey, look, on, I, I, on London. I've been dry for the last six months. Easy. What would they? Um, what, what, so they, I guess that means no. So, um, but on a serious note, dry January as well. On a serious no. note, though, Goddess, <laughs> what would they do? Would they fly you out on? Would they fly you out on a helicopter, or they fly you out on a greyhound, or what would they do? On business, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With velvet cushions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. Uh, all of the above, and um, uh, you know, fortunately, they still have two-seat aeroplanes up there because um, they're few and far between on all the uh, the modern aer- uh, the modern aeroplanes at the moment. So, unfortunately, Ian, that is a um, that's a dud that question because none of us have actually done it. But uh, we'll go and find someone who has. Yes. Um, and there was a question on here that I thought was good about Tempest. Here we go, Paul Lawler. What performance would you be looking for from the Tempest, and is it ever likely to happen? Question mark. So the Tempest being the um, the new collaboration. Um, and uh, industrial collaboration as well, uh, and different air forces, uh, lots of technology going into, um, I guess, the fighter of the future. So, so was that a Mac number question? What Mac number would we be expecting? <laughs> Performance. <laughs> Not quite. So, 182 Mac. Have I been right? Oh, critical wing. Interesting. <laughs> 187 at a push. It's no longer just a UK project, is it? Is it Swedish as well? Yeah, I think as far as I know, um, like I say, it's it's a big collaborative project at the moment. And, and um, you know, it really is about technologies at the moment and innovation. So they're looking at uh, – we went and looked at the – do you remember the mock-up at Farnborough Air Show? Yeah, I remember and it because you rugby tackled me away from the uh, first Sea Lord. I remember it well. Yes. You weren't allowed to speak to the first Sea Lord. You weren't allowed to doorstep him, JB. But it's the sort of stuff that they had in there, you know, that virtual reality or augmented reality um, helmets. It'll be about networks. It'll be about um, decision making, 
I know everyone talks about artificial intelligence, but, you know, not in terms of flying the aeroplane, but in terms of looking at sensor feeds, um, bringing all of those sensor feeds together so you get a single picture of the truth that is offboarded to someone like me, for example, in the uh, in the KOC, um recently. Uh, all of those sort of different sorts of things I think we'll be looking at. Um, I don't know what modern camouflage stealth is going to look like you know whether you have any sort of reactive visual camouflage whether there's infrared um radar camouflage you know all of those sorts of things yeah. whether it's manned or unmanned um there's, there's a ton of different things i think they're looking at in in terms of what a fighter of the future is going to look like and we're not the only ones doing it as well france and germany are collaborating on uh, on something at the moment the us clearly uh, are looking at all sorts of things um in the future uh china russia um all of this stuff is out there. Well, when we get the first, as I believe, it will happen. Don't we? Don't we get the first drawings of the B twenty one? Is it B twenty one? Next, next year or this year? Yeah, it, which amazes me that that stuff's going to be out in the public. Um, but that'll be interesting. They're, they're sort of it's a long range bomber, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's going to be the replace. I think they want to replace all three of their current bom- bombers. I I think, but I, you know, I'm no. You know, I don't have any, any proper knowledge of, of the thing. Um, but yeah, so I think Tempest is really exciting, uh, just in terms of the technologies that they're looking at at the moment. Stuff like new engine technologies, um, airborne lasers, all of these sorts of things that you could uh, you could put on aeroplanes. And um, it'll be exciting to see what they come out with, because whether it it appears as a specific aeroplane or not, those technologies are definitely going to appear in current or future aeroplanes. I'll tell you the, um, the, the technology which quite excites me is the is drones used as wingmen and using legacy aircraft to support the new stealthier aircraft. So have you seen the project to look at the F-15 as basically a missile truck? Yeah, uh, so I was about to say exactly that. You know, the Americans call them missile sleds. Um, so it, it, exactly that. Um, unmanned aircraft or what were manned aircraft turned into unmanned, you know, drone is the wrong word. But um, to support uh, piloted vehicles out there that can do the decision making for them. Um, it's, it's all pretty cool and exciting. Hmm. Interesting stuff. I, I read in one of the magazines it wasn't using older legacy aircraft um, that were unmanned. The, the uh, imagery I saw was of cheaper um, stealth stealth machines, though, that uh, effectively one pilot was controlling from his master machine, where you know, and he was flying it and controlling um, a bunch of other unmanned aircraft with the systems that he had. Yeah. Uh, but they were but they were all stealthy. From what the, yeah. yeah, there's loads of different versions of it out there, Dunk. From you know exactly as you're saying, big, new stealthy ones to medium to small, um, modern, brand new aircraft, carrying weapons, sensors, those sorts of things. So when, very much like now, you request, you know, you you put a sensor on a target, doesn't mean it's coming from your aeroplane. It could be that little miniature wingman that's got a targeting pod on it that is stealthy that you've launched into 
the uh, into the area and is data linking that picture back to you. So you're not using one on your own airplane. It's that sort of stuff is exactly that. And there's a ton of different things out there that people are looking at. So there isn't one particular one. I think the Boeing loyal wingman has been in the, uh, yeah, in, the in the news recently, which is probably the one you're talking about, which is exactly as you say, Dunk, you know, a sort of big yeah. stealthy looking uh, um, drone drones for I use the word drone it is the wrong uh, is, but we all know what we're talking about, but refueling, you know, carrying fuel around there to, uh, to top you up when you need it. Um, that sort of stuff, weapon sleds to, uh, just as I said, you could have sensor sleds, weapon sleds, all of those sorts of things. There's some really cool ideas. Yeah. Now, yeah. Tell yeah. me if I'm wrong on this, but just to give an indication of how uh, good networking can be. Am I right? I'm going to sound like an idiot now, but did this, did the sea harrier say if you had two sea harriers fa- um, flying, one sea harrier locked onto a target and then decided to fire. It would be the computer system that would decide which missile came off which rail on which aircraft, depending on positions. No, I That's don't easily think... doable, but I don't think the okay. sea harrier had that I'm technology s- I'm in it. certain the Mark II did, because I was listening to something, and it, I don't know why that rings a bell, but I'm pretty sure that, that the... Mark II did actually. I, I think of, as my, my knowledge of the Royal Navy will, how that data link will work will be one pilot saying on the radio, uh, you fire, shipmate. And that's probably, uh, <laughs> aye, aye. that's probably as far as it goes. Aye, aye, Captain. I, I think that it might have chosen which missile was, you know, the left or the right would be the better one, but it wouldn't choose which aircraft. No. Uh, was there the that would be my... But that's my... the sort of thing of the future there, JB, exactly as you're talking about with, you know, you've got your armed wingmen around the place you press the button to shoot at something and you don't know where that weapon is going to come from that would make you jump wouldn't it if suddenly it was yours <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, exactly, you'd yeah. have a real scream goddess <laughs> yeah. i'd pass it'd out be a, it would be another well, be another did. thumbs down moment <laughs> i'd be in 100 percent oxygen <laughs> <laughs> Uh, excellent. Uh, right. Uh, well, we'll leave, uh, we'll leave it there. Actually, before we leave it there, can I? I'll, I'll just give a shout out to a different um, a different podcast, uh, purely for the fact that I think listeners of this podcast will quite like a recommendation. Uh, so, in the spirit of the old uh, book club things, have a listen to the Jeremy Paxman podcast, and he interviews a Royal uh, Royal Navy nuclear submarine captain or ex captain, and it's absolutely fascinating. So, I thought I'd I I would share. I would share that. Nice one. Well, as we're doing shout-outs, I, I said to some of the boys uh, who are just starting one of the courses, Tom Napier and Jordan Capehorn are starting uh, the uh, his brand-new Prefect to Hawk. So it's uh, Prefect Basic Training um, at Cranwell this week. So if you're listening, hello, boys. And I've got a question as well whilst we're at it, which oh, isn't cool. related to flying. But if I can, I just thought, given these difficult times, um, I just ask Parky, how was the vaccine, mate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was the yep. first to get it. Yeah. Really good, actually. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. all be able to meet up soon. <laughs> <laughs> on that bomb, sh- on that bombshell. Yeah, so let's leave it there, right? You can find us uh, at at Pilot Episodes. Is it Pilot Episodes Pod? Twitter? Yes. Correct. And someone's manning it. I'm not manning it. Someone That's is manning slick, it. JB. You're the host, JB. <laughs> Park is all over it. Uh, and that's it, really, because we'll be back soon. So uh, me, Dunk, and Parky, we might have a guest. We might not. We, um, Well, we might do all sorts. We don't know. 
do we? But what do you think? No idea. We have no idea. We have no idea. We didn't know what we were talking about. But today. We, we're going to keep them coming. Yeah, but we'll and just keep showing up because that's secret to success. Uh, 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 isn't it, boys? Just keep showing up. Keep showing up. There you go. <laughs> awesome. All right. For me, Dunk, Dunk and Parky, th- thank you very much. Goodbye. See ya. So. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.